Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In June of 2016, 18-year-old Aaron Page went missing from Perth in Western Australia. Eight days later, the truth of his disappearance was brought into the light, and with it, the tale of two monsters who were determined to bring their own horror story to life. This is Monsters. Aaron Page was born in 1998 in Perth, Western Australia. His was a happy and easygoing childhood filled with family, friends, and play. Around the time Aaron started school, his parents noticed some odd behavior. After undergoing some tests, they were told he had Asperger's, which is a developmental disorder characterized by significant difficulties in social interaction and nonverbal communication. Children and adults with Asperger's may also have restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior and interests. The condition is part of the autism spectrum, and individuals often display intense focus on specific topics, a desire for routines and challenges in understanding social cues. Despite those difficulties, many people with Asperger's possess average or above-average intelligence and often excel in areas that interest them. For Aaron, the condition meant he struggled to connect with his peers as he was unable to understand many of the social norms we all take for granted. But he was also very intelligent and loved video and computer games. After high school, Aaron was supported to undertake further study at TAFE, which would be considered a form of community college in Australia. By all accounts, Aaron was a good student with a bright future academically. He lived in a lodging house with other students, and his friends described him as good-natured and friendly and always keen to chat. Aaron dreamed of getting a good job and living in Japan one day. But all of those dreams were stolen from Aaron when he crossed paths with two monsters. Gemma Victoria Lilly was born in 1991 in Stamford, England. From the outside looking in, her childhood appeared to be pretty average. She lived with her parents, she was highly intelligent, and she had plenty of friends. But behind closed doors, the picture-perfect family were anything but. Gemma's mother suffered from mental illness and was a violent abuser who directed her rage at her husband and children. When Gemma's father eventually managed to leave the relationship, he took full custody of both of his children and moved far away from his ex. 
The children were physically safe, but the damage to their minds was already done. By age six, Gemma had lost interest in dolls and toys and instead developed a fascination with violence. Whenever she could, she would watch movies featuring serial killers. She took her passions further by dressing up as the villains and carrying around sharp knives she collected as a so-called hobby. At the same time as her impressionable mind was being filled with images of blood and gore, Gemma was also diagnosed with dyslexia and autism. Over time, those diagnoses and her strange love of all things gory began to isolate her from her classmates. At age 15, Gemma wrote a novel she titled Play Zone. The story was about a killer named SOS, which stands for Son of Sam. It also happens to be the name given to a real-life serial killer, David Berkowitz. He was responsible for shooting at least eight people in New York in the 1970s. It turns out that Gemma was obsessed with David Berkowitz and John Wayne Gacy. She would later claim that the SOS in Playzone meant style or smile, but the narrative she penned told a different story. The novel included a level of brutality and gore that was profoundly disturbing, especially for a writer of her age. There were graphic descriptions of violence that far exceeded typical teenage angst or curiosity. One line from the book reads, quote, I feel as though I cannot rest until the blood or flesh of a screaming victim is gushing out and pooling on the floor. As the internet came of age, so did Gemma. By her late teens, she was posting her disturbing thoughts online alongside an online version of Playzone on her personal blog. Within a year of writing the book, Gemma dropped out of high school thanks to a combination of poor grades, misbehavior, and violent outbursts directed at her classmates. Soon after leaving school, she enrolled in a computer game design course, but the same issues came up again and within a few months she had dropped out of the course as well. At that point, it should have been clear that Gemma's fascination with violence was not just a childhood phase and her book wasn't just the musings of an imaginative teenager. Instead, it offered a disturbing insight into the mind of a future killer. In 2010, when Gemma was 18, she decided to travel overseas for a fresh start and a change of scenery. Her father hoped it would be a turning point for his troubled daughter. And it was in many ways, but not in the way he hoped. Gemma's first and last stop was in Perth and Western Australia. Her father had a close friend from the UK who had emigrated to Western Australia several years earlier. He offered to take Gemma in and help her get on her feet, but when Gemma turned up, she wasn't the same cheerful and friendly girl he remembered. She was sullen and withdrawn, and he noticed a distant glint in her eyes. He expected they would talk about her travel plans and her hopes for the future, but instead their conversations had dark undertones and often left him feeling unsettled. Despite the uneasy feelings, he helped her secure two part-time jobs to pay her way. One was stacking shelves at a supermarket, and the other was as an assistant at a tattoo parlor. Before long, she was covered in tattoos and mixing with the regular crowd at the parlor. After two years in Australia, Gemma's visitor visa was set to expire. She decided she wanted to stay in Australia permanently, but there were very limited options for her to do so legally. So she came up with a novel way to trick the system. In 2012, she married one of her gay friends, Gordon Galbraith, in a Freddy Krueger-themed wedding. While there was no sexual connection between Gordon and Gemma, they did appear to be good friends. 
She even had a nickname for her husband. She thought he looked similar to one of her idols, John Wayne Gacy, so she called him Gacy. Soon, even his friends were calling him by the same name. The marriage enabled Gemma to apply for permanent residency and make Australia her home for good. For a while, it looked like Gemma had turned the corner her father had hoped for. But unbeknownst to him, the darkness that had shadowed Gemma's early years was growing and it was about to become all-encompassing. During her time in Australia, Gemma wrote a number of articles for the U.S. magazine Serial Killer. Yes, there was a magazine about serial killers. Gemma wrote stories about Eric Edgar Cook, who was known as the Nightcaller. His crimes included shooting, stabbing, and strangling, as well as hit-and-run attacks. He committed multiple murders, attempted murders, and other assaults in Perth in the 1960s. I did an episode about him almost two years ago. You should check it out. She also wrote about Martin Bryant, who was the perpetrator of the Port Arthur Massacre. That was one of Australia's deadliest mass shootings, resulting in the deaths of 35 people and the injury of 23 others. I also did an episode about him. Gemma also created a Facebook page for Playzone where she promoted the book to her followers and posted quotes from its pages. In one post, she wrote, quote, Let me introduce you to your friendly neighborhood serial killer, SOS. What better reasons for pure white snow in England? Not long after the paperwork was signed on Gemma's permanent residency, Gordon took his own life. His death certificate listed his marriage status as separated. That was problematic because if Gemma was separated, it would affect her residency application. She later claimed they had only been living apart for a couple of weeks at the time of his death. Whatever the truth of the matter, Gemma was allowed to stay in the country, a decision which would have terrible consequences. By 2016, Gemma had been promoted to night shift supervisor at her supermarket job. It was around that time that she met Trudy Lennon through a mutual friend of Gordon's. Despite the fact that Trudy was 17 years older than Gemma and the mother of three children, the women became fast friends. At first, it seemed innocent enough. Trudy told Gemma she wanted to lose weight and Gemma shared that she wanted to as well. But after Gemma gave Trudy a copy of Playzone, they realized they shared much more than a desire to change their bodies. They also had a mutual obsession with violence. Beyond mere blood and gore, they were also fascinated by suffocation, castration, forced feeding, whipping, and scalping. Within weeks of meeting each other, the two women were involved in a sexual relationship. Trudy had previously worked as a sexual submissive in Perth's fantasy bondage scene, so naturally, Gemma took the position of dominance. She called Trudy by the name Corvina, and Trudy called her S.O.S. They got matching S.O.S. tattoos, and a few weeks later, they moved in together. Gemma had recently purchased a home with the help of her dad's friend. It was a small unit which she liked to refer to as Elm Street, in reference to the iconic horror movie A Nightmare on Elm Street. Once they were living together, the progression from lovers to killers escalated rapidly. They sent each other thousands of text messages over the coming weeks talking about their desire to kill. At first, the messages read like fantasy, but it didn't take long for them to bring their dark desires into reality. When Gemma and Trudy first met, Trudy was studying at TAFE. 
one of her fellow students was Aaron Page. Everyone knew Aaron was a whiz with computers, and he was often asked to help out other students with their technical difficulties. Everyone also knew he had Asperger's, which made him more susceptible to influence. For Trudy and Gemma, those vulnerabilities made him the perfect target. On the morning of June 13, 2016, Trudy dropped her children at school and made a call. She called Aaron to ask if he would come to her home to help her fix some computer issues she was experiencing. She promised that if he helped her out, they would play some video games together after. Aaron was a genuinely friendly guy and would help anyone who asked, especially someone he knew and especially if it involved computers and video games. His landlady overheard part of the call and when he hung up, she agreed to drop him at the local shopping mall where Trudy had arranged to pick him up. But rather than helping someone out with their computer, Aaron walked straight into the plot from Playzone. Instead of a home, he walked into a torture chamber and instead of spending time with a friend, he came face to face with SOS. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nothing seemed out of place at first. Aaron was picked up and taken inside the house, directly into the living room. Trudy showed him the computer that needed fixing and handed him a cup of coffee. When his full attention was focused on the device, Gemma came up behind him with a wire in her hands. She put the wire around Aaron's neck and pulled it tight, strangling him right where he sat. He fought violently to try to remove the wire from his neck and gasp for air, but his efforts were in vain. Gemma's position gave her a significant advantage. She was standing which allowed her to exert more force and maintain control over the situation. There was a momentary reprieve just before Aaron lost consciousness when the wire broke, but Gemma wasn't going to lose the momentum. She grabbed a knife and while Trudy held Aaron down, she stabbed him in the neck and chest three times. Then they watched as he bled to death on their living room floor. With their dark desire fulfilled, they cleaned up the house and went about their lives as if nothing had happened. Except something had happened. Those who kill, whether justified or not, often refer to an indescribable change in their psyche. Regardless of the circumstances, taking a life is a profound and altering experience that leaves a permanent mark on a person's mental and emotional state. For some, it results in profound guilt, trauma, or a disconnection from reality, even if they killed in defense of their own lives. But for others, it triggers a sense of power or control, and lust for more. Unsurprisingly, Gemma's reaction fell into the category of elation. Gemma felt like her whole life had been leading up to that moment. She had finally become the embodiment of her own character, SOS. That persona was no longer just a figment of her imagination, it was now a thrilling reality. That euphoria continued for days after Aaron's murder. In text messages she sent to Trudy, she wrote, quote, I am seeing things I haven't seen before. I'm feeling things I haven't felt before. It's incredibly empowering. Thank you. Trudy replied, You're welcome, SOS. 
The text messages between the two women in the days after Aaron's murder make it clear they thought they had committed the perfect murder. They believed no one would know they had tricked Aaron into coming over or that they were even capable of being involved in a crime in the first place. Except the trail of evidence they left behind might as well have been a neon sign leading directly to them. Two days after the murder, Aaron's family reported him missing after his landlady told them he hadn't returned home from the mall. The police took Aaron's missing person report very seriously. He was 18 years old and allowed to do as he pleased, but with a condition like Asperger's, he was more vulnerable to exploitation than others his own age. Investigators discovered through his phone records that the last call Aaron received on his mobile phone before he disappeared was the day that he'd been dropped at the mall. That call came from Trudy Lennon, his friend from TAFE. When they looked at CCTV footage from the mall to establish his movements, they saw Aaron waiting at a taxi stand and then getting into a vehicle and driving away. The vehicle was registered to Trudy, the same person who had last spoken to him. Investigators could also make out a second person in the passenger seat of the vehicle, which was later determined to be Gemma Lilly. Eight days after Aaron was last seen, officers knocked on the door of Gemma and Trudy's Elm Street home. Inside, they found a disturbing collection of paraphernalia. There was a huge variety of knives, scalpels, and even a bone saw. There were handwritten notes describing torture methods such as branding, force-feeding, foot-roasting, genital mutilation, and Chinese water torture. There was a bloody Chucky doll and a drawing of a man's silhouette brandishing a knife on her drawing board. Inside the garage, officers found a kitchen pot with meat inside it. The meat was sitting in a pool of acid and it was later determined to be an experiment to break down bone. In Gemma's bedroom, they found a square of carpet had recently been removed and covered with a piece of furniture. What authorities found inside the house was no doubt disturbing and unsettling, but none of it pointed to where Aaron was. Gemma and Trudy both denied they had anything to do with him going missing, and they seemed to have an explanation for all of the questions they were being asked. It was beginning to look like a dead end, until an officer noticed a freshly tiled patio in the backyard. Gemma had previously pointed out the area and described it as a nice place for Trudy's children to enjoy. But the officer noticed that the tiles weren't straight or flat and the job had clearly been carried out by amateurs. That simple observation led to a pivotal moment in the investigation. Authorities believed the tiles might have been concealing much more than shoddy workmanship. Sure enough, after carefully removing the patio, they discovered Aaron's remains wrapped in a white drop cloth with cling film covering his face. He was buried in just 12 inches or 30 centimeters of soil and concrete. His autopsy determined that he had been strangled before being stabbed. The injuries that had ended his life included a punctured lung, liver, and severed jugular vein. He also had extensive defensive wounds on his hands, indicating a violent struggle in the moments before his death. With the discovery of Aaron's body at the home Trudy and Gemma shared, the area was immediately cordoned off as a crime scene. Multiple officers and forensic technicians swarmed the site. Three days later, they discovered a hidden room where Aaron's body was believed to have been stored between the time of his murder and the time of his burial under the patio. The floor of the hidden room was made from tiles and the walls were covered in plastic tarps. 
To one side was a makeshift gurney made out of a shopping cart which had been cut down to its base. Human hair belonging to Aaron was found wrapped around one of the wheels. On June 22, 2016, Gemma and Trudy were both arrested and charged with murder. During their initial police interviews, they each denied any involvement in the slaying, with Gemma saying she hadn't even met Aaron. But as the investigation heated up and more evidence was found, they painted themselves as innocent and the other as the murderer. Trudy decided that instead of denying involvement, she would try to pin the murder on Gemma, and she tried to excuse her involvement as being merely an observer. Trudy claimed that she welcomed Aaron into the home, but that she didn't know Gemma was going to kill him. She admitted she had watched as Gemma garroted Aaron, and that she had helped to restrain him when Gemma began to stab him. She also conceded that she had helped clean up the scene and hide evidence of what they had done. When it came time for Gemma to give her version of what had happened, she denied any involvement at all. She said she had never met or even heard of Aaron until the day Trudy asked her to pick him up from the mall. She said that on the day of the murder, she was on a motorcycle ride, but she came home to pick Aaron up at 10 a.m. When the trio arrived back at the house, Trudy had told her she was training Aaron in BDSM. Gemma claimed to have said that she didn't mind as long as she kept it away from her so she didn't have to see or hear any sex if anything happened. She further tried to discredit Aaron's reputation by claiming he had asked how young Trudy's children were when they were driving back from the mall. Gemma's version of events after arriving back at the house with Aaron goes like this. The trio all had a cup of coffee, but Gemma drank hers in the kitchen while Aaron and Trudy shared the couch which was also Gemma's bed. Gemma started feeling dizzy, so she grabbed her pillow and her hard drive out of the living room and went to another bedroom to lie down and watch TV. She said, quote, I went and watched The Simpsons Season 7. I hadn't intended to fall asleep, but I didn't even get past an episode. She later claimed Trudy had spiked her coffee with sedatives. The next thing she said she remembered was Trudy shaking her awake at 2 p.m. She said, quote, I got up and walked into the kitchen. I saw Aaron's bag on the bench and I asked if he had left it there. She said yes he had, but she'd be seeing him at college the next day. She also claimed that Trudy had told her that Aaron's dad had texted him and so he left in a hurry just before she woke up. Then Gemma noticed that her bed slash couch was outside and upside down. There was also a piece of carpet that had been cut out. Trudy claimed her cats had urinated on the couch and the carpet. She said, quote, I was furious. I argued with her saying she'd only been at my house two weeks and she felt she could cut some carpet out. At the end of her recorded police interview, Gemma was told she was being arrested. At that point, she stated, quote, I'm baffled. I don't know what's going on now. Why am I under arrest for murder? In a second interview the following day, Gemma was asked about the freshly tiled patio in the backyard where Aaron's body had been found buried. She claimed that the patio was Trudy's idea and that she had asked her to renovate the area so that there was somewhere nice for her children to enjoy. She was effectively claiming that she had concreted and paved the back area without realizing there was a body buried just 12 inches beneath the surface. Needless to say, the women's explanations made no difference to the charges against them, and in November of 2017, they appeared in court together in a joint trial. 
It was clear from the outset that neither woman was going to take any responsibility for their role in Aaron's death and that they truly believed the jury would find them innocent. The only problem was that, when it came time to present the case, there was no shortage of evidence to demonstrate that both women were equally culpable of Aaron's brutal slaying. There were phone records and CCTV footage from the mall, but there was so much more to demonstrate the women had been plotting the murder since long before Aaron entered the home. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The jury were taken on a journey through Gemma's life of violent obsessions. They were shown Play Zone and her Facebook fan page. They were also shown a letter she had sent to Robert England, the actor who played Freddy Krueger when she was 24 years old. A part of it, which was read to the court, said, quote, As strange as it may seem, I've always seen Freddy as a father figure. Papa Freddy. Everything is perfect in the world if I get to hug Freddy. In court, Gemma stated she had first watched the movie when she was six years old. Six. She admitted she saw Freddy Krueger as her protector and her guardian angel. Gemma's internet search history showed she had repeatedly looked up the terms murder and torture. Friends who testified for the prosecution claimed she had said she wanted to kill before she was 15 and that murder was the number one thing on her bucket list. But in court, Gemma excused her search history and constant talk of murder by claiming it was all simply research for a serial killer trilogy she intended to write as a follow-up to Playzone. On the stand, she enthusiastically explained her creative process and the level of detail she was planning to include. She told the court she would spend hours on the internet looking up real-life killings and then make notes in her personal notebook, which she would use when she wrote the actual story. Gemma was unable to explain why that same notebook had Aaron Page's name and address written in it, especially since she repeatedly claimed she had never met or heard of him until the day of the murder. CCTV footage formed a large part of the evidence against both Trudy and Gemma. Footage from a local hardware store showed the pair purchasing saws, concrete, and hundreds of liters of hydrochloric acid the day before the murder. Ironically, Gemma had also installed security cameras at the Elm Street house. Those cameras recorded as Trudy and Gemma led Aaron into the property on the day he went missing. Footage from later that same day showed Gemma entering the home carrying a knife in her hand. She literally recorded herself leading her victim to his death and the weapon which she later used to commit the crime. Then there was the house. When officers discovered the hidden room in the home she shared with Trudy, they found tarps hanging from the ceiling, Dexter style. Several windows were covered with trash bags which had been split open and taped to the walls with duct tape. Gemma's bedroom was filled with knives she had been collecting since childhood, as well as the disturbing list of torture methods. Gemma tried to explain that the trash bags were simply to protect her windows and walls in preparation for painting as she intended to convert the hidden room into a tattoo studio. The wire that was initially used to strangle Aaron was also found in the home. 
It was described as having two blue plastic handles on each end secured onto a reasonably stiff metal wire link. The evidence painted a much darker picture of who Gemma was than what she would have had them believe. But Gemma hadn't acted alone, and the text messages she exchanged with Trudy demonstrated they were all in on the plot to kill. Text messages Gemma sent to Trudy from 13 days before the murder said, quote, I'm unable to rest until the blood or flesh of a screaming, pleading victim is gushing onto the floor. Until all of the streets are stained red and the fear in the back of everyone's mind is SOS. I cannot shift this belief. The world has become not only ready for me, but it needs me to be ready. Trudy replied, quote, It's definitely time. I am ready. You are ready. In other messages, they talked about SOS's first kill as being not necessarily quick, but not a long one with some torture, and, quote, Corvina standing back and watching discreetly, ready to take control of the cleanup, while SOS comes back to reality. Gemma not only wrote about the SOS killer, she envisioned herself as the monster. She had SOS tattooed on her arm and written on her motorcycle number plate. When she got angry, she would say, SOS is coming out, to indicate things were about to take a violent turn. And of course, there's the fact she made Trudy call her SOS in their dominant submissive relationship. Trudy texted, quote, I will fear you, but respect you. I see you as my dominant. To which Gemma replied, quote, 100% perfect. It would seem you truly understand my SOS role. My mind is the darkest being you will ever be laying your life in the hands of. But perhaps the most damning evidence of all was the testimony of one of Gemma's colleagues at the supermarket. Gemma was Matthew Stray's boss, and he told the court that he had been stacking shelves one night when Gemma had come over to him and excitedly stated, quote, I did it. I killed someone. He thought she was joking, so he didn't say anything in response. Then a few minutes later, she continued with, quote, I had to get Trudy to hold him down. I put the wire around his neck and I tried to use it and it broke. She explained how after the wire broke, she used a knife instead. He testified, quote, She said it went in a long way and made a cracking sound when it went into his chest. Then she told Matthew that she was going to get a tattoo to signify what she had done. He said in court, quote, She said it was like a symbol to represent the significance of killing someone. Matthew didn't say much during the conversation, but he told the court that Gemma was sure the police were never going to catch her. She ended the conversation with Matthew by saying, quote, Don't worry, Matt. They'll all be vigilante-style killings after this. A few days after that conversation at work, Gemma texted Matthew to say she was just storytelling and that nothing had happened. It was only after Gemma was arrested five days later that he told the police what Gemma had said. In court, Gemma denied that the conversation with Matt had ever taken place. However, at the time Matt came forward, he had not been told what method had been used in Aaron's murder. The level of detail Matthew knew about the way Aaron had been murdered indicated that he had heard it directly from someone who was there. On November 1st, 2017, after five weeks of trial, the jury returned their verdict after just two hours of deliberation. Guilty. Both Gemma and Trudy were sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 28 years. Neither of the women showed any emotion as the judge handed down their sentences. The judge stated, quote, 
you are not driven by hatred, a desire for revenge, or the hopes of personal gain. The idea of killing another person was something that excited both of you. You saw it as a fulfillment of your shared fantasies. You hoped and expected to derive pleasure from the violent taking of a life. Your motives for committing this offense were the pitiless pursuit of your own desires. This is an offense that would cause all right-thinking people to have feelings of horror and revulsion. Aaron's mother commented, quote, They have taken an innocent boy from his loved ones. He was full of life. He loved life. They can rot for all I care. Lifetime, no parole. They don't deserve the air they breathe in. That sentence remains one of the longest ever handed down by a court in Western Australia. After the trial, Gemma's father gave an interview where he was asked about his daughter's conviction. He revealed that he trusted his daughter when she told him she was innocent. He said, quote, She said, no, 100% I did not. And with the emotion in her eyes, I believe her. I know my Gemma. She has not got a bad bone in her body. I guess it's no surprise he couldn't see who Gemma really is. After all, he was the one who allowed her access to violent movies and encouraged her knife-collecting hobby as a child. In 2018, Trudy was targeted by a fellow inmate in a boiling water attack. She was waiting in line to receive her medication when a female inmate poured freshly boiled water over her back, shoulders, breasts, neck, arms, and fingers. The water caused severe burns to 21% of her body. The inmate who carried out the attack was said to have been disgusted by Trudy's crimes. I get it. The attacker was later sentenced to an additional five years for causing bodily harm. In 2018, the media reported that Gemma was in a romantic relationship with a fellow inmate, Melanie Atwood. Melanie was the leader of a neo-Nazi female group called Aryan Girls and is serving a life sentence for planning the murder of her former partner Alan Taylor in April of 2016. He was bludgeoned to death in his own bed, with his killers then going to the movies in a bid to create an alibi. The murder plot was concocted so the president of a neo-Nazi group called Aryan Nations and Melanie could be together and collect a $1 million life insurance policy. The media reported that the pair were not shy about their relationship. Inmates claimed they were openly affectionate, including constantly touching, holding hands, and sitting in each other's laps. They had also been overheard talking about white supremacist views. After the story broke, the women were moved to different prisons. In 2019, Gemma appealed her sentence. Her lawyers argued that excerpts from her book should not have been given to the jury. They said the book was written years earlier and the killings in it bore no resemblance to Aaron's manner of death. They also stated that evidence about Gemma's collections of weapons should not have been allowed to be presented as evidence. The court turned down the appeal and stated none of her grounds for the appeal had any merit and her challenge to her conviction should be dismissed. The court stated that details about the book Play Zone were correctly included at the trial as evidence of Gemma's character and of a tendency that she had, namely an intense interest in the nature of an obsession in serial killers and murder generally. The court also ruled the evidence about the knives was correctly allowed, because together with the other evidence, it showed Gemma was more likely than an ordinary person to use a knife to stab someone. She has not appealed her conviction or sentence again. In September of 2020, Aaron's father was awarded $25,000 compensation for the mental and nervous shock he suffered following the tragedy. 
He said he had been profoundly changed by Aaron's murder and had at one point considered his own death as the only thing that would bring him peace. Fortunately, it seems that he has gotten some help. To Gemma and Trudy, Aaron was not a person with dreams, hopes, and a family, but merely a character in their disturbing storyline. But to him, they were simply monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.